This is the EC Podcast, by and for emerging conservation professionals. I'm your host, Liz A. Bear. The release of episodes was sporadic for the past year while I wrote my master's thesis, but I am excited to be back and working on season two. I started this podcast two years ago in the first few months of the pandemic with an episode about applying to the University of Amsterdam Conservation and Restoration Master's Program. Students who have since applied to the CNR program in Amsterdam have reached out and said that the episode was very helpful when they were applying to schools. Every graduate program deserves to have something similar. This season two, I will be interviewing students from different grad programs so that you can learn from the best. We'll cover information about applying, the structure of the program, practical concerns, and personal accounts from current and past students. I'm hopeful that emerging conservators interested in pursuing grad school will find the season helpful when determining which program is right for them. To start off the season, I had the pleasure of sitting down with students from the University of Cardiff. Their program, run by Jane Henderson and Phil Parks, is a two-year Master's of Science dedicated to teaching the next generation of conservators through problem-based learning on real heritage objects. I hope you enjoy this season, and to learn more about all the programs we discuss, please follow us on Instagram at EC Podcast. Hello, I'm here today with four students from the University of Cardiff. Uh, We have three current students in their final year of the conservation program and one recent graduate. Hello, everyone. Uh, Thank you for having me here. Uh, My name is Fedra. Uh, I am half Greek, half Cypriot. And uh, I am uh, studying conservation practice at Cardiff University uh, with a focus on archaeological conservation. Hey, y'all. I am Michael Masinski, a second year MSc conservation practice student at Cardiff University. I'm very interested in kind of modern items, not necessarily plastics, but just newer things in the conservation of those and also information technology and coding and how we could apply that to conservation. Hi, I'm Saren Kitchener and I'm a professional conservation student, which overlaps a lot with their course. Um, And my interests lie in general conservation, like object conservation and particularly like care of collections in the National Trust. Hi, I'm Kate Derringer and I am a recent graduate in object conservation. I enjoy mostly like ceramics and glass, uh, some textiles, and I like focusing on the sustainability within conservation. All right, let's talk uh, at the beginning about what interested you in conservation and perhaps how you found this field, because I think everyone has a really different story. Uh, Sure. So I actually studied uh, classical archaeology and ancient Greek uh, as my undergraduate uh, in Scotland. And uh, I went on digs uh, in Romania and in Greece and Cyprus. And while I was digging, I was, uh, I guess, a little too careful and was constantly told to go faster. Uh, And uh, I also spent a lot of time doing post-excavation work, and I really loved it. Then uh, I went on an exchange uh, at the University of Connecticut in the U.S. for a year. And uh, there I volunteered in uh, the uh, New England Archaeology Lab, uh, where I was doing a lot of cleaning of uh, artifacts and uh, bones. Um, And again, I just really loved the post-excavation aspect. So when I graduated, I wanted to go into conservation and I decided to move to Malta to do a preparatory program in uh, the conservation of wall paintings. It was very much science-based because I knew that many master's programs require you to have uh, uh, some science prior to entering. So I wanted to cover that base uh, and do that. And I spent two years in Malta uh, doing a lot of wall painting conservation. But um, once I was uh, done with that, I wanted to go back to my archaeology background uh, and therefore decided to come back to the UK and uh, study object conservation. Very nice. Mike, what uh, interested you or brought you to conservation? Um, So 
my path to conservation is very asymmetrical. Um, I graduated in 2007 with a bachelor's in history. At the time I did, well, part of my program required a internship of some sort with a museum or whatever. My internship was with the National Park Service in uh, Richmond, Virginia. That was kind of my very early introduction to conservation. I did kind of like condition reporting on a, on a large collection of books, um, but not actual like bench work, anything like that. Then, you know, I graduated, uh, kind of fast forward a few years, couldn't find a job. So I went into the Navy actually, and I was in the United States Navy for about nine and a half years. I was an intelligence specialist and I think it was about 2018 or so, I was stationed in Miami. And my job at the time was, I was a FOIA expert. So uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, auditor, I guess, or officer. Uh, basically, if, if you've ever seen anything on TV where you see like the paper documents with the black lines on them and all that, uh, it was my job to put the redactions on those documents. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I got a request, and it was actually from 1947. I can't go into too much detail about it, but basically the, the person was requesting all these documents from the FBI, and they forwarded those documents to us. I was like, wow, this is really cool. They, like, who is taking care of this stuff? Why, why do they still have this stuff around? So I just, you know, got on Google, started looking, and kind of stumbled into, like, archival, you know, library sciences, whatever, and that just kind of led me down to the down to conservation. And I was like, yeah, this seems really neat. That is absolutely fantastic. Really fascinating. <laughs> Saren? Well, mine is not nearly as interesting as that. <laughs> I think if we took it right back to my interest in the sector, it would be when I was a kid, my parents would relentlessly take me to National Trust properties. So it'd be every weekend at a different place around a different house. So that's always kind of stuck with me throughout my childhood. And then into my college A-levels, they had archaeology as an option. And I was like, that sounds like a bit of me. So I did that alongside history and biology and environmental studies. And it was kind of a 50-50 which way I was going to go. And so during that time, I did a lot of digs. I'm just obsessed with getting muddy so <laughs> and being outside. So it, conservation didn't seem like the most obvious route. And I don't think it ever really cropped up to me because we'd take things out of digs and then they just be like, oh, and someone will sort this out for us. And so it was never something we saw unlike Fedra. So I did consider dropping archaeology altogether, going with um, environmental sort of things. And uh, luckily, I did really well in my archaeology exam. So I was like, can't really drop it. I should stick with this. And I came to a Cardiff Open Day, actually, to look at studying archaeology. And it was during one of the tours. They were like, oh, we'll actually just pop up to the conservation area. And I was like, Whoa, what's this? So <laughs> it hadn't really cropped up into my mind at all until then. And I remember we walked into one of the labs and they had um, the coffin like the sarcophagus out on the table and I was like that is the coolest thing ever and they're like yeah we work on this and I was like I have to do this so then that was kind of when I started looking into conservation and moving away from archaeology but it was definitely archaeology that's first got me on the path. I think archaeology tends to be the in point for a lot of people. Yeah I definitely I think it's a bit more vis visible and out there. And Kate's I didn't even know that conservation was a career or a degree that I could even go into until I was like in my early 30s. Um, I have two bachelor's degrees. My first one is in fine arts. So I had an amazing art history professor. And towards the end of my senior year, we were just sitting there having lunch because she became a very close like mentor to me. And she's like, no, I just see you doing more of the behind the scenes or traveling and doing more outside of fine arts. I was like, okay. And then she said conservation. She's like, and you could study in Italy because she knew my love of traveling. That day for the next year, all I did was research conservation. And so I had no background in archaeology, no background in conservation before I applied to study abroad. 
and go for a bachelor's. And where did you do that? At Maris College in Florence, Italy. We lived, we studied together, we graduated together. But following graduation, I got an internship in California. And then one of the girls that I worked with there, she actually did the program in Cardiff, talked very highly about it. And um, I thought that object conservation was going to be kind of where I needed to be to narrow down my path. Okay, great. Um, so we already really touched on everybody's conservation experience, um, but I know that the program advertises itself as being a conversion course. So you really don't have to have any conservation experience prior to application. All of you seem to, but can you speak to that at all? Yeah, go ahead, Kate. Since none of these lovely people were in my group, um, everybody in my cohort, there was four Americans amongst 13 of us. Three of us Americans had a conservation background. Everybody else did not. All of the people from Wales and England, nobody else. Mostly archaeology or art history. I think we had a couple Egyptology, which I think is very nice for this program that they're very inclusive in not needing conservation because they teach all of that, which I feel like this program, I loved my Italian program, but I feel like I learned more with this than I did there. Well, I, I was just gonna uh, kind of say the same thing. Uh, our, our cohort this year, we have, I mean, a lot of people from uh, like a history, art history kind of background or whatever, um, but we do have people coming completely out of left field, people like myself coming from the military. We have somebody who was a uh, an audiologist in a past life, somebody else who worked for the NHS, quite a, you know, still a variety of people as well, which is great because I think it kind of brings in a lot of different perspectives on things. It's not just a single focus. Yeah, I was going to ask if that impacts uh, how you communicate about conservation and attack different problems. Yeah, I, but I think our first year, we kind of learned the lingo and the language and how to talk. So we get on the same page pretty quick. I think the because obviously my course is very slightly different. It's basically the same just in one year rather than two years. But essentially, the first year of their course, they do alongside um, the undergrad. So you learn the exact same as what you would be learning if you were doing the undergrad in three years, but you learn it in a very intense one year. So I can't imagine that, what that was like for you guys, because I was stressed enough over three years. But it catches you up to speed quite quickly for your second year. Yeah, with the first year in this program, it definitely fine-tunes your learning about the ethics behind conservation as opposed to just fixing something. And definitely the first year, it was a lot of them putting trust in us to make the right decisions and explain why we are doing something, why we are choosing something, exploring more of the ethics portion of it, which is definitely needed. All right. And what interested everyone individually in the program? What appealed to you over some of the other programs you looked at? Uh, let's start with Fedra. Uh, so I applied to pretty much all the schools in the UK. Uh, Cardiff, I really liked because it was a big city. Other conservation uh, schools are in very small towns around the UK. Uh, I did move with my partner, so I wanted to find a town that had uh, more um, opportunities, you know. Uh, so that was a factor. Uh, secondly, um, I got a scholarship from Cardiff University, so that pretty much <laughs> made my selection easy. But also, um, I had attended a number of uh, webinars where uh, Professor Jane Henderson, who's one of our professors at Cardiff University, was speaking. And I just, uh, I was so impressed uh, by her and by her work. And I thought I need to, you know, be part of this university. Um, so when I decided on conservation, I, being an American, I immediately looked at the American programs. 
the admission requirements for the American programs are insane. Uh, especially as a career changer, I, I didn't have the time to go back to school, relearn chemistry, take a six month plus internship somewhere unpaid. I, I didn't have that option. That just wasn't realistic for me. I, I previously lived in the United Kingdom as well. So looked and, and saw a Cardiff program. I, I also applied to uh, Lincoln and City and Guilds as well. My, my rationale for Cardiff was actually very similar to Fedra's. My spouse needed a job. I thought Cardiff would probably be a better opportunity being a bigger city. It was just partially practical as well. Yeah, mine's kind of a, a mix as well. Um... Because obviously I did my undergrad there, I knew the lecturers quite well, and every placement I went on, you know, and they all talked very highly again of Jane and Phil, and they're quite well known within the sector, and they're very, I, I don't know, personally I think they're very progressive in the way they see the sector, and they're always pushing for different things um, and new ideas. Because sometimes it's, I find it's a sector that can get very stuck in the past and like this is how we traditionally do it this is how it should continue to be done and Jane is very much no I'm, I don't agree with that it goes against the grain I mean it's all subjective it's your own views isn't it but I really liked that style in Cardiff um, and I think also a lot of the master's courses around the UK tend to be quite specialist so Kingston is they've got their building conservation course um, Whereas this one, I felt like I could still, because I'm still not entirely sure what I want to do in that area. And this one allows you to stay quite open. Um, and again, a bit like Fedra, I got a scholarship from Cardiff. So I was like, going to stay for that reason. And also, I think you get a discount if you stay at the university you did your undergrad at. So that was another. <laughs> so there were some financial reasons uh, feeding into it. And I just love Cardiff as a city. It's, I feel like it's the perfect size city with everything you need without being too overwhelmingly big. So that's what I liked about it as well. Um, for me, choosing Cardiff just seemed like the better decision. I actually applied to Cardiff and then to Amsterdam. And the main reason for me choosing Cardiff was, again, the openness, uh, because I wasn't sure also where I wanted my career to go. And since Amsterdam is so track focused, I was not sure yet. Like being in Italy, like the whole two years, I was like, I want to go to Amsterdam. I want to go to Amsterdam. Um, I did most of my application, but as soon as I got accepted to Cardiff, I did not finish it. I, I knew that Cardiff was where I wanted to go. It's nice to have that like confidence in choosing a program rather than getting stuck with one. Uh, we have been talking about applications a little bit. So what are the actual application requirements for your program? I think mine said I needed a 2-1. That's all I remember is that I had to get a 2-1. <laughs> they were like, and then you can stay. What is a 2-1? Um, I don't know. How do you? It's like a B in the U.S. Yeah, it, it's um, uh, it's a good grade. Uh, usually between sixty and sixty nine. Uh, yes. because in yeah. the U.K. Um, the grading system is completely different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, you need a two one honors degree or an equivalent international degree in any subject a university-recognized equivalent academic qualification or professional experience to degree level evidenced by references. So all of you had, um, you went the track of being able to submit your previous education. Did anyone have to use the references to apply? I submitted two references. I think I needed it for a different program that I applied for and I just kind of figured I'd throw them in there as well. Um, to apply, you need to submit a personal statement demonstrating your interest. So how long did that personal statement have to be? Were there any specifics on that? No, I think mine was maybe two or three pages, like regular standard double space. Mine was just a page. <laughs> Same, one page. Yeah. <laughs> My, I think mine was like 500 words. Yeah. Well, I'm an overachiever safe than sorry you never know <laughs> uh 
And then the last thing that I found really interesting about the application process is that it's on a first come first serve basis. So there's no specific deadline for applications. How does that work and how many people get into the program? Well, my year, so when I started in 2019, we had 13 new students and they had said that that was the most that they had had a, a couple years. It was normally like 10, 11. I know your guys's group is a little bit bigger. And then this group is even bigger. So I don't know if they're trying to just bring in more students or... It's definitely been growing year on year, and but they're capped it because of the lab space they have. They can only take a certain amount because of the lab space, but they've never reached it. But recently, and they've been getting more popular, and they've been being like, "How are we going to fit everyone in?" Especially with COVID. Um, so yeah, it was a little strange. We did have a. We were only eleven, I think, uh, when we first started in our year. Uh, so the year after UK, uh, but it was because of COVID restrictions. And so uh, they didn't take as many students, uh, but this year, so those who started in September this year, uh, I think there were 19. Yeah, it's, they have a huge class. Absolutely. So when you're submitting your application, you just send it in to an email to the university and wait to hear back. Yeah, pretty much. I didn't even know it was first come, first serve until you told me. <laughs> I just, I handed mine in, I think maybe around January um, and just waited. I think it's common in the UK though, because when I was applying, I applied uh, late, like uh, in May, I think, uh, to different schools. And actually uh, I was, other schools uh, did interview me and uh, tell me they wanted me, but that they had already accepted the maximum amount of students and were just waiting for someone to refuse their acceptance letter to let me in. So I think the first come first serve basis is quite um, common in the UK. Yeah, I think so. Maybe that's why I've never noticed it because everything's done that way. <laughs> just like, that's the way it is. I found the most pressure was on like, uh, securing funds, like getting your scholarship applications in and that sort of thing. I found that a far more stressful and bigger time constraint than making sure I got my application in first. And did the university support you financially? A few of you mentioned scholarships. Was that easy to acquire? Well, obviously in the UK, we have the government loan. It depends what region you're in, but because I'm an English student, it's capped at 11 grand. And obviously this course is 9,900 and something, which doesn't leave you a lot for maintenance. So then I applied to a master's scholarship from the uni, which is a three grand scholarship. And I think they give out about three per school, roughly. Um, and then I also applied for the Anna Plowden Conservation Trust, uh, which was a much more intensive application. And that they awarded me 2,500 in the end. So that's what I used for my maintenance so that I don't have to get a job. But I know a lot of people do have to get a job. I'll provide links to all of those scholarships that you just mentioned in the show notes. And then lastly, the website says um, that you need science at a specific level of the GCSEs, but you can also forego that if you have taken science courses. How much, how much of a focus is there on science during the application process? So when I had applied, I submitted my transcripts and one of our professors, Jane, actually emailed me like two months later and was like, we're having trouble finding a science course that you had taken. Can you point this out? And I, I, had, <laughs> I had taken in 2003 a chemistry and society course, which is just kind of like a generic, like check in the box that you took a science. And I said, hey, yeah, this is what I took. And then like four days later, I got the acceptance letter in, in my email. So the course itself is, there. there is a focus on science for sure, but at least having that background, I really didn't have it, I gotta say. So she did recommend, uh, well, what is it called? Chemistry for conservators course. If, if you were unsure about, you know, your science and, and everything to take that, but I never did. And I made it to the second year. So I think I'm OK. I think with the um, like optional modules as well, I don't know, to some degree, you can 
sort of tailor what you're looking at so that it's not overly sciencey. So with your dissertation, you can pick something that's a bit more uh, care of collections-esque if you're not comfortable going really chemistry-based. Because I know in my undergrad, they also said you had to have chemistry at A-level GCSE or something like that. And I said to them, I didn't have it. And they were like, it doesn't really matter. As long as you've, you've had science education in the past, then you can tailor it so that it suits you better. So I think it probably definitely helps, but my chemistry was weak and it, they help you build on it. I do have to say that having um, taken chemistry for my undergrad, coming into Cardiff, the basic classes that we have to take first year, they do go into more of the science related to conservation as opposed to just the straight chemistry part of it which I found very helpful. Yeah, I think it's basically open to all who are interested, as long as you're committed to uh, going through all the science during the first year. But uh, yeah, as Kate said, it's very um, conservation-based science. I have one last question about admissions directed specifically at the American students, because it sounds like there's quite a growing interest in this program from Americans. So how did you find the application and acceptance process as an American? Kate, you want to go first? Well, I think I might be a little bit differently. I don't know with your military if your process was a little bit different, but for me, application process was easy. The visa process, on the other hand, there are many ways to go about it. You can pay quite a bit of money to have all your documents sent over and processed and sent back to you. I chose the less expensive route where I do it all myself and I should have paid somebody to do it because it is very, I don't wanna say very confusing. It is manageable, but they do not make it easy. I mean, you're either going to be stressed out or pay a little bit more money. So kind of choose what you want to do. I got the best of like all the worlds with all this stuff. My spouse is actually EU citizen. I came in under the EU settlement scheme, actually. So I'm actually like a permanent, essentially kind of like a green card resident of the UK. I, I don't have a student visa. Uh, I don't think the program's going on anymore, but um it was pretty easy. The actual application process to get into the school was, again, very easy as well. We already kind of went over it, but it was just kind of submitting your documents and finances. So I paid school through, as a veteran, it's called the GI Bill. The issue is, I think I am the only student that uses it here. It's pretty rare that you'll probably see a veteran in conservation again, but if anybody actually does go through it or whatever, it just keep that in mind that it could be an issue with GI Bill stuff. And Fedra, being from the EU with Brexit, was there any similar issue with a visa for you? Uh, so I actually uh, entered the program, I believe the last year before uh, EU students uh, were to transit into an international fee. Uh, rather than EU fee. So I was really lucky with that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I would have applied to the UK if uh, international fees applied because I could not afford that. Okay, I think that covers all the questions about the application. Uh, let's move on to the structure of your course. So I know that it's two years long. Saren, you're doing a different course that's only one year, but we'll get to that in a moment. So can someone tell me about how the two-year regular master's course is structured? Sure. So uh, the first year, we do have a focus on science for conservation uh, and courses on materials and methods. While during the second year, we have uh, courses that are more focused on decision making and ethics in conservation, um, as well as uh, uh, research and heritage. So our course is quite general. They encourage you to try different kinds of objects uh, to find basically what you are most interested in. We have the option to take modules that are more uh, preventive conservation. Uh, so these would include uh, things like uh, environmental control and uh, pest management. 
As far as practical work, uh, every student is given about uh, two or three objects at the beginning of every academic year. And we have about four hours of supervised lab work, so one day a week. Uh, but it's very much a uh, problem solving course where we are left on our own to, uh, to figure everything out. So we make our own significance assessments, condition reports, and then uh, treatment proposals that we then submit to our professors one, uh, once we are ready. And once it's approved, we can actually conduct uh, treatment. Um, then we have a placement in the summer between the first and second year. We are basically given the choice of either finding our own placements or uh, they have plenty of connections uh, and have guided many of us last year uh, through finding a project. Uh, then at the end of our second year, once we have completed all of our modules, uh, we can finally start our dissertation. So it's uh, between 10 to 20,000 words um, and you can do either a scientific study or a more theoretical study. Uh, they do give some very general topics for you to choose from. Uh, and basically, we have to complete that between mid-June to mid-September. And Saren, how is your program different? Um, so it pretty much the structure, like the everyday structure is the same as that. It's just that um, instead of doing two years, if you've already had lab experience, so obviously because I did the undergrad, they already knew I had lots of um, bench work and I knew the basics. Um, or if you've come from, I think my other course mate, um, they've come from a very like scientific lab-based, chemistry-based background. Um, so if you can prove enough to that extent, they'll let you take it as a one year basically. And I think a couple of my modules, um, are a bit more care of collections based. I think it's a bit more of a balance between the two um, in the professional conservation, but it's pretty much the same as what Fedra said, just in the one year instead. And you did the undergrad for conservation through Cardiff University. Could you briefly touch on how that program works? Um, so that one is run alongside the masters, the first year masters of this course. And I think in your first year, it's very much, you're not given proper objects until the latter half. And then in your second year, in the second half of the semester, you don't have any lab work, more like theory and care of collections again. Um, third year, in fact, is very similar to the masters course. It's like we will get our own individual objects. Um, and then you do a dissertation as well, which is up to 10,000 words. Um, but that runs for longer. So you start that in October of your third year and you finish it in the May, I think I finished it. And you also have to do a supporting presentation. So you have to fight your argument for it, um, which we don't have to do luckily this year. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of just the rough outline of it. Thank you. Uh, Kate, as the only person who's completed the program entirely, could you talk a little bit about what your experience was writing the dissertation? Like Fedra said, we started in June and each dissertation has a uh, supervisor. I had uh, Nicola and Dave, they would set up meetings with us. So if there was multiple people, they would try to kind of get us all together. And then they would meet with us one-on-one, -on -one, lots of emails kind of. For me, mine was a um, practical dissertation. So I was in the lab a lot. I got to talk to them a lot. I did a lot of experimenting. So at least once a week, I ran into my supervisors um, until I left in September. So end of August, um, I was with them and talking to them. And then we, I got a, an extension, pretty much all of us second year because COVID kind of just really, we hit, we got hit really hard. Uh, pretty much all of us got an extension. But I went home in September, I submitted in October, but at least once a week, once every other week, I would talk to them and send them examples. If I needed any help, they were very willing to help. And we even did like Zoom meetings to um, just talk things out if we needed help up until I think two days before we submitted. It sounds like your program, the professors provide a lot of support for the students. Would you say that's true? Oh, absolutely. Even now, like I still talk to them and I'm, I'm in a job now. And I think 
at least three of them did reference this for me. So they're all very supportive. They really are. And um, they're extremely helpful with finding different opportunities on the side. So uh, volunteer opportunities, they they send us uh, new volunteer opportunities on a daily basis, really, <laughs> you know, if we want to get involved or not. So, yeah, they're really, really helpful. I think it helps as well because they're such small cohorts because um, I know like friends who have been on history courses where they have hundreds of students. They just come in. They don't talk to anyone. You get lectured <laughs> and then you leave. But because it's such a small class environment, you have one on one interaction. I think that's really valuable. And are your professors full time educators or do they do conservation practice on their own? Uh, are they Ph.D. candidates? Uh, so we have some full-time professors, and I believe that some of them do have uh, conservation work on the side. I know that one of our professors, Phil Parks, that we've mentioned many times, does some uh, chain mail reproductions. So uh, that's really cool. And he loves to talk about it. So, <laughs> And we love to listen. Can somebody tell me about their experience with the summer placement? So that happens between your first and second year. Uh, it's, I believe it's for about six weeks. Do you, is it often that people go outside of Wales for those placements? Is that an option? Can you pick it yourself? You know, if you're American and you want to do something in the U.S., is that an option? For our year, it was very... Uh, strange in the sense that we didn't know if we actually could go on placements until the very last minute. Um, I, I did my placement in uh, Greece uh, with the American School of Classical Studies at Athens. Um, yeah, I, I basically applied on my own and uh, got reference letters from my professors at Cardiff Uni. They did uh, give us a grant for the summer as well. Uh, which really helped. I believe that wasn't just for the international internships. I think uh, we all got some. I know that uh, those students whose placements got cancelled or uh, something happened and they couldn't go anymore had a replacement placement basically within the labs with uh, Phil Parks. I think, uh, Mike, you can talk about this because you were one of them. Yeah. Um, so I had, I actually had two. Uh, placements set up in the States. I had one at the St. Louis Art Museum and one actually at the uh, with New York Central Park. But unfortunately, I couldn't go uh, because of a medical reason. So I was actually really bummed and I was like, oh, man, I got to just sit in the lab or whatever with Phil. But it was actually fantastic. It, it was a great, great experience. It was completely different than normal class. Uh, basically, we have to find the answers for ourselves during our normal semester. This time it was just kind of Phil saying, hey, why don't you do this, this, and this? And it was actually kind of relieving in a way because I didn't really have to think too much, but I got the opportunity to work on a wide variety of objects. We actually worked with the School of Pharmacy. They actually have a little, actually quite a large museum of uh, old pharmacy stuff basically and we got to clean that we got to you know take a look at everything and also phil would just be like hey so what do you guys want to look at today so we we take turns uh laser cleaning for example or just box building kind of the the basics 101 of of conservation so yeah if if a placement doesn't work out or whatever just working in the lab with phil it was, it was great it was really good and I think the process, so I did one placement that wasn't affected by COVID and it was about January. They give you a form to fill out and it's essentially like either list an area you want, like, like a geographical area. So I did mine because obviously my housing finished for the summer. So I did mine back home near Swindon um, or you can do an organization. So I did like the National Trust or like Conservation Lab. So I ended up at a Conservation Lab um, just by Chippenham in uh, Wiltshire and worked in the lab for four weeks. Um, and I think the experience you get on placement is so different to the experience you have in labs because everything's much more fast paced. You don't have a year to figure out how to fix this object. Um, and they, it's very much like you're not typing up treatment proposals all the time. So I went through a lot of techniques in four weeks um, that really solidified my confidence going 
further into conservation, I was like, oh, I actually know more than I realized. <laughs> and it really gets you a good idea of how it works on like a commercial level or in a massive organizational level. Um, but yeah, they definitely support you in getting them. So that one Jane had set up for me, they were like, I found this placement. Here's their email. They're going to email you, set it up for when the dates you want. Um, and then I did a second placement where I just organized it myself. I just emailed the museum and was like, will you take me this summer? And they were like, sure. <laughs> but that one, I didn't get a grant, unfortunately, but you normally like Fedra say, they give you a grant in the summer to sort of help with petrol or anything. All right. Um, so moving past your program and into your career as an emerging conservation professional, how much career support have you received from the school? So I think Jane is very good at career support. She knows exactly what sort of things you need to be doing. And she is very big advocate of um, getting experience. She's like experience will get you just as far as getting a top grade so and she's very good at setting up lesson structures that sort of make you look at things that actually relate to doing things in real life scenarios and I know Phil mentioned the other day that they don't like giving us assessments that are just for the sake of us writing they like to do things based on what will help us in the future so for example after Easter we've got a portfolio due in and that's marked but they're like you will need that in your future so you might as well do it for an assessment um, and I know with one of my modules, we had like a twinning sort of thing where they partnered us up with professionals in the sector who were really helpful. Some of them were also Cardiff grads. Um, so they sort of showed us how they got to where they were as well. So, yeah, it's very they're very supportive, I think. And just to echo Saren about Jane, she she knows everybody. And she'll also offer, I mean, just a, a wealth of knowledge. I, I went in for kind of an interview for a position uh, where I volunteer and she made a bunch of suggestions like, you know, wear a tie, um, make sure you mention this, like kind of interview prep, all, all that kind of stuff. They're very supportive with not just like the networking, but the stuff that goes along with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, well, I had also a mock interview with Jane Henderson uh, for a job I applied to. So they're really, really helpful. And to add to what Saren said, uh, our assignments are very much based on uh, our future careers. So, for example, right now we are submitting this week an assignment, which is a mock AHRC application. Uh, because if we work in the conservation field, we will have to apply for funding at some point in our lives. So it's uh, really good training for us. That's absolutely fantastic. And kind of just to add a little bit towards the end of my first year, again, since we were transitioning into COVID teaching, they also brought in a lot of like guest speakers too. We had somebody from CCI talking about interviewing processes and what you need to know during a job interview and just that type of information to prepare us to go into a career. So it sounds like you definitely have all been able to build really effective networks within this program through your teachers. Um, other than your teachers, what's a way that you've been able to build your network? I think the placement is one of the main ones because um, obviously you meet so many professionals there and I've kept in contact with all of them um, and they still email me like, oh, are you free this Easter? Do you want any work or like all that sort of stuff, which is really handy. And it, obviously it's quite a slow process to get your network out there. Um, and also Twitter is the main one that, wow. Well, Again, Jane pushes a lot for Twitter, but I have found it really useful. I was a bit like, oh, I don't want to at the start, but I've connected with so many different people on there. Um, I think through that, I managed, I got asked to write some articles for different conservation blogs and all that sort of things. And then we also, um, for my undergrad dissertation, we had the chance to present that at ICON and things like that. Um, we got put forward for that. Uh, which again, puts your name out there a bit more. So I think there's definitely other opportunities as well. Uh, our professors do encourage us to publish uh, little articles in um, journals like News and Conservation and uh, participate in webinars. So yeah, there, you, you have many chances to, to do so if you wish to. 
one of the final questions that I have for you all is based off what you've learned in this program, what are your future plans and goals once you graduate? And Kate, specifically, you've already graduated. What are you up to now? And what do you hope to be doing in the future? So let's start with Fedra. So I am unsure of where I'm going to end up. I'm pretty much open to anywhere in the world um, because I have worked and studied in many different countries and because I understand that with conservation you go where the opportunity is. Um, I have this dream of moving to Athens and finding a job there in archaeological conservation. Uh, I would love for that to happen, whether it's going to happen or not is a different story. Um, and then my husband is American and uh, he's currently doing a PhD. But basically, once he's done, we are considering moving to the United States. Um, really, once he's done with his PhD, it's going to be more about whoever finds the really good job first, the other one will move there and try and find a job in their field. Mike? Um, oh, I don't know. I, I guess I'll know when I grow up. Um, I. I, I'm very interested in uh, like IT work, coding, programming, stuff like that. I, I think there's a lot of things that could be applied, I guess, to conservation in that field. It would be nice to find a job kind of combining those two. Uh, in terms of location, kind of like what Fedra said, it's it's kind of where the jobs are. That's jobs are hard to come by in this field, especially in the post-COVID world. So you kind of got to go where where the jobs are. Uh, I don't know. I, I do have the opportunity to live in the States. Obviously, I could stay here in the UK. I could live somewhere in Europe as well. So the options are endless, really. But I guess we'll see. Saren? Um, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> I think I've always gravitated towards the National Trust. So really anything heritage-based, care collections-based, conservation-based with the National Trust, um, especially as I'm from Swindon, um, a lot of their, the headquarters for the National Trust and the English Heritage are all there. But I would still be keen on doing like lab work and conservation work. I've actually applied recently for a, a care of collections assistant uh, working for the Science Museum in their stores, which are also conveniently located in Swindon. Um, <laughs> everywhere just uses Swindon to store their things from London. So um Maybe something along those lines. Yeah, wherever the wind takes me, I guess. I'm not too fussy. <laughs> and Kate. Really, I was like everybody else. I kind of said, I will go wherever this job takes me. And I applied, I started about this time last year and I probably put in, gosh, if it wasn't a hundred applications by July, I'd be surprised because I, found every single thing that I was qualified for on LinkedIn, Facebook, AIC, everywhere. Um, even some that I wasn't qualified for, I just put in my application. And um, over the summer, I did have a couple interviews, which didn't pan out, but um, I knew my job was waiting for me. And in November, I got um, a position at the Warren Lash Conservation Center in Charleston. So I started in January. So I've been there about two months now. And I am an objects conservator. And we we have a lot of big projects, some research. And I mean, it's been amazing so far. So I love it. And I'm happy that I was able to get a job so quickly after school. But you just got to be persistent and put in those applications. So uh, let's use this last few minutes as an opportunity. If anybody has a, like a social media conservation website, anything that they would like to plug, this is your time to do it. Uh, so I started a, a podcast of my own uh, called the Future Conservators Podcast. I only have two episodes so far, but I'm hoping to uh, have uh, many more coming up. 
And I basically interview conservators from uh, different fields, different countries, um, some in the private sector, some in the museum sector, uh, some in uh, ed- education, and uh, find out about their experience. So yeah, check that out. <laughs> I'll put that in the show notes as well. I was literally just going to plug my Twitter, which is at serenkitch 11 And then also... If you haven't seen it before, Mainly Museums is a Twitter page where I've published a few of my articles on there, but they're really interesting to go have a look. Um, and also they're very open for anyone submitting their experiences with museums, etc. Um, so definitely go check that out for them as well. And I'm going to do a shameless plug of my new job of Warren Lash underscore conservation underscore CTR. So you can check that out and see the big projects that we're doing. My Instagram, Mike the Conservator. That's where I post pictures of all my cool stuff that I do. Uh, Also going to throw in the CU Conservation Instagram, Twitter, whatever. That's just like our generic student one. Check it out. See what we're doing. Also, I'm going to throw my name in for the IIC News and Conservation uh, December, January 21. Uh, issue. I wrote an article in there about veterans and conservation. It's something very near and dear to me. Uh, There aren't any veterans in conservation, as far as I'm aware. Um, And I think it's an issue that kind of needs to be addressed by the by the field. So please take a look at that article if you want to read something. Most definitely. That sounds great. Thank you all so much for being on the episode today. I really enjoyed learning more about your program and more about you all as individuals as well. Thank you so much for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so Thank much you for, for inviting us. us. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. To learn more about emerging conservation professionals, please follow us on Instagram at ecpodcast and email any questions to ecpodcastxxx at gmail.com. This podcast is edited by Liz A. Bear. Our theme song is by Manet van Feldhausen and Paul van Laar. Our logo is designed by Adler Papiernik. If you liked this episode, please leave a review and subscribe.